Lesson 15, and the title, as you can see up there on the board, if you can see the board, is the Jacob Laban wrestling match. Remember I told you we could divide Jacob's life into three, three matches, three wrestling matches. He had the Jacob Esau match. That's behind him. That struggle is behind him. Yet ahead of him is the Jacob Laban Boy, he ain't seen anything until he meets Uncle Laban. (laughs) That's what we'll be discussing today, the Jacob Laban wrestling match. And then his final one next week will conclude with the night he actually wrestled with the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, who was the Lord Jesus. All right, so that's kind of a quick outline of his uh, life. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the beauty of this day. Thank you for the Bible, which reveals yourself to us, what would we do without it? We wouldn't know you. We'd be floundering. We wouldn't have the the grounding that it gives us, and we wouldn't have the hope of an afterlife. We wouldn't know you. We wouldn't know your son. There'd be so much. We wouldn't know where we came from, where we're going, why we're here. Thank you for the Bible, and thank you for the the assurance we have as we study it that is, it is indeed your word. It is God-breathed, God-inspired, every jot and every tittle. And so thank you. Thank you for it. Thank you for this opportunity living in a country where we can still freely assemble to study it, to get to know you better. And I pray, Father, that as we look at this lesson on Jacob, who became Israel, a very important character in, in your redemptive plan, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have his will and way, that you would help me to speak quickly and think clearly and uh, communicate adequately and that we would all have spiritual heartburn by the time we leave and that your son would be uplifted as he alone deserves for we pray in his name amen well nothing further is said about Jacob's journey remember he had to leave because Esau wanted to murder him and he left Beersheba where he was living and he was on his way 500 miles to go to Haran Aaron or however you pronounce it up in Syria, to stay with his mother's people and to look for what? A wife, a bride. But uh, we only had that one stop that we were told about where he had the amazing dream about the ladder to heaven. And he met for the first time the Lord of the ladder who spoke to him. Then nothing else is said about that journey, which probably took him about three weeks um, until he gets to the outskirts of Haran. And there he sees, and I am in chapter 29 right now, he sees a well. He comes to a well out in the field. I don't think it's the same well that his mother had met Eliezer 97 years earlier. Because her well had steps, she had to go down steps. This one has a big, heavy stone on the top of the mouth of the well so that children and animals and debris and dust doesn't fall in it, but a very heavy stone. So I think it's a different well, but it was almost a century later. But he comes to this well outside of Haran, and there's three flocks of sheep lying by it. That's in verse 2 of chapter 29. There are shepherds standing around the well because they're probably very young and they're waiting to get enough of them together so that they can lift that heavy stone off the well and water their flocks. Well, Jacob arrives and he sees the flocks of sheep and he sees the shepherds. He goes to them and he asks them 
if they know Laban. Now, he doesn't know if Laban is even still alive. The guy's got to be pretty old, really, because his sister, as I said, left almost a century ago, Jacob's mother. And so he says, do you know Laban? And they say, yes, we do, because we're also from Haran. And he says, is he well? Might have been better for him if he wasn't. (laughs) But they said, yes, he's well. He's very well. Uh, Too well. So anyway, and then the shepherds say, and by the way, look, here comes his daughter, Rachel, with his sheep. She was a shepherdess, like my grandmother was a shepherdess in Greece, in the mountains of Greece. That's a hard task. So we find, you know, when we compare well experiences, we find a lot of similarities between these two with Eliezer and Rebecca and now Jacob and Rachel. Rachel was beautiful. If you look at verse 17 of chapter 29, it describes her as being beautiful and uh, well-favored. You know what that means? She had a nice figure. She was (laughs) well-favored, you know. Um, but she was also a hard worker like her aunt, Rebecca. We know Rebecca was hardworking because she, you know, watered all those 10 camels. We talked about how many trips that would take down to the well and carrying her pitcher, etc. But Rachel, too, to be a shepherdess is hard work because you have to, you know, all kinds of weather. You have to be out there with the sheep no matter what it's doing. If it's raining, it's storming, whatever. You have to be out there in the heat. You have to uh, protect them from predators like wolves and whatever. The other predators might be in that area. Um, have to lead them to green pastures. You have to water them like she's doing here in this episode. It takes a lot of work, a lot of work. So she was a hard worker. And like Rebecca, she was also beautiful to look upon. So he, uh, he sees her coming, and um, he's moved. But before I get to that, I skipped something. Uh, I wanted to talk about the comparisons You know, when Rebecca arrived at the well, Eliezer knew by her words and her actions that she was definitely the one that God had chosen for Isaac, right? How did he know that? Because he had prayed about it, and he had prayed a very specific prayer, and she fulfilled that to to the T, And so when when he knew she was the right woman, he fell down, he bowed down, and he gave thanks, didn't he? Well, we don't see that, unfortunately, with Jacob. There's no indication that he prayed for the Lord's guidance. Actually, the whole time he is in exile, you know, he's like a fugitive. He is a picture, not of Christ, but a picture of Israel. His name is even changed to Israel. He, as he he leaves Israel, the land of Canaan and goes to uh, Syria, he is a picture of Israel in exile. That's why he doesn't have much with him. You know, when they went into captivity in Babylon, they didn't have much with them, did they? So he just has a staff and oil, and he's picturing Israel. And the whole time he's in exile, we don't read of him praying, and sadly we don't read of him ever building an altar, which is sad. Um... But anyway, we don't see him praying for the Lord's guidance in choosing his marriage partner. Now, he knew the story about how his parents, Isaac and Rebekah, got together. But apparently, he did not ask the Lord to be his matchmaker. Now, remember, Jacob is an independent kind of a guy, isn't he? 
very self-willed. Most of his struggle is with himself. Self, his self-will is old man. And so he, it, he didn't really want to commit that much to the Lord. That could really be dangerous. What if, for example, he prayed to the Lord specifically and said, show me the, the woman you have for me by having her be the very first female to come out to the well. And then the one that showed up was not too well favored. <laughs> what about if the one that showed up had tender eyes? That's how Leah is described. She's described as having tender eyes. And that's in verse 17. Now, I think that I like to think that that means that she had big, soft, brown, brown Right, tender eyes, like if you ever looked into the face of a cow and see, have you? I know you have. Or a giraffe, yeah. You know what Laban named his two daughters? Yes, you do, Leah and Rachel. Leah's the older sister, Rachel's the younger sister, but you know what their names mean? You and cow. Leah's the cow. Leah means cow. And Rachel means you, E-W-E, a female sheep. So you see where his priority was, right? On his livestock. His livestock is so, it's so important, more important than his, than his daughters. But I think that, you know, she was probably named cow when she was born because she had those big, tender, soft, brown eyes. That's my thinking. But a lot of commentators will say that the tender eyes mean she had weak eyes and she probably couldn't see well and needed glasses, you know, and squinted. Who knows? Don't you like my option better? Yeah. All right. So anyway, but so he doesn't want to pray about it because he doesn't know who might show up. And uh, as I said, he doesn't want to commit himself. He would rather choose his own wife than entrust the matchmaking to God. Now, as we go through this story, I want you to think about this question. Do you think Rachel was the one that God had chosen for Jacob? Or perhaps might it have been Leah? So let's think about that. Well, another contrast between the well encounters of Genesis chapter 24 and this one here in Genesis 29 is that Jacob did come to Haran alone, didn't he? He didn't have an entourage of 10 camels and made uh, men servants. He didn't have silver and gold jewelry to give as a dowry he he hardly had anything and also in the other case it was Rebecca who had watered Eliezer's camels and in this situation it's Jacob who waters Rachel's sheep so he was truly his mother's son because he too was he was a hard worker he single-handedly picked up that heavy stone He's 77 years old, but he still, you know, in that day, that's probably like being 40 or something, I guess. But he was strong. He picked up that heavy stone by himself, and then he watered her sheep. I think he was kind of showing off, don't you? (laughs) I wanted to, one of the appendixes that you will get in your lesson is about the well encounters of Scripture. Whenever there are three very similar episodes in the Old Testament, they usually 
are typological of a fourth episode that will take place in the New Testament. And that's what we have here in well encounters. There are three of them in just the Pentateuch. Two we've already mentioned, Eliezer and Rebecca, their encounter at the well. The one we're talking about now, Jacob and Rachel at the well. And the third one, anybody remember? No, no, in the, in the Old Testament. Huh? Another shepherd met his wife at a well. Moses, there you go. Who said that? Raise your hand. A plus, Christy. <laughs> Moses and Zipporah. All right. Now, those three Old Testament well episodes have seven features in common. Here they are. I'm going to say them really quickly. A man has traveled from a distant land. He arrives at a well. A woman comes to the well to draw water. Number four, the man approaches the woman to speak with her. And in the process of speaking to her, he tells her who he is. Number five, the woman returns to her people and shares with them uh, what the, who, that there's a man at the well and who he is and what he's told her. Number six, the man is introduced to the women's people. They come out to the well to meet him. Then the woman becomes the, a bride. Now, the only case that was different was Eliezer. You know, she didn't become the bride of Eliezer, but she became the bride of his master's son. All right, so the woman who came to the well becomes a bride. All right, those three Old Testament well episodes point to typologically the one that you did mention in the New Testament, John chapter 4, Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. All right, so here's what we have in that situation. Jesus traveled from a distant land to get to that well. Well, he did come really a far distance. He came from heaven, but he also had uh, traveled from Jerusalem. He was on his way to Galilee and remember, it says he must needs pass through Samaria because he had a divine appointment. That's why he must needs go through Samaria. He had a divine appointment with a woman at a well. So he travels a distance. He arrives at the well outside of a Samaritan village called Sychar. A woman comes to draw water from the well. The Lord Jesus speaks to her and he tells her who he is, the Messiah. Number five, the woman returns to her people and she tells them about Jesus and all he has told her. And then the people come out to the well and Jesus is introduced to the people and the woman and her people become believers in him. Therefore, they become part of the bride of Christ. And actually, they were the very first ones to ever call Jesus the Savior of the world. And they adequately, especially, well, the woman, let's say her, she very appropriately pictures the church because she's Samaritan, which means she's part Jewish and part Gentile. She's a mixture. Did that tickle your heart? <laughs> Burn <laughs> All right, so, uh, and I thought, too, it was interesting, you know, <laughs> Rachel takes off to, t she goes to her father, Laban, Rebecca went and told her mother, remember, that's a little bit of a difference, but um, she left something behind, just like the woman at the well forgot her water pot, what does Rachel leave behind at the well? Her sheep, I was bragging about what a good shepherdess she was. <laughs> She forgot, totally forgot about her sheep, but she left them in good hands because Jacob was a master shepherd. 
All right, so he's so excited to, to um, meet his beautiful, well-favored first cousin. They're first cousins, and guess what? They're kissing cousins. Because the first thing he does, well, it goes even further than that, doesn't it? <laughs> but the first thing he does is kiss her, which, of course, was the greeting. They kiss each other on the cheeks. And then it says in verse 11, he lifts up his voice and he weeps. He, he's had a rough time of it, you know? He's um, been on the road traveling for three weeks, a fugitive from his brother. He doesn't know what's ahead of him. He doesn't know if Laban's even still alive. He doesn't know if there's going to be any appropriate daughters, and everything just seems to fall in place. And so he's just really emotional, and he, he starts to cry. So after learning who he is, what does Rachel do? She run, Everybody always runs in those days. So she runs back and tells her dad, and uh, he, in turn, how old he was, he's got to be really old. He runs to the well to meet, for the very first time, his nephew. You know, he had to say goodbye to his sister almost a century earlier, and now comes her son. So he is very warm and gracious when he meets him. They hug each other, and he kisses, you know, they kiss as well. And uh, everything goes smoothly for a month. One month, he hosts. That's as far as Laban's generosity ever went. But he hosts Jacob for a month. And during that time, he is observant. Laban is very observant. He notices that Jacob has fallen head over heels in love with beautiful Rachel. While I think Leah secretly fell in love with Jacob, but didn't tell anybody about it. And so um, we, he, after a month, <laughs> after his cheesy smile finally wore thin, you know, Laban goes to Jacob and he asks him, verse 15, should you serve me for nothing? You know, should you serve me for nothing? Why don't you set your wages? Tell me what you, what you, what you want. I'll hire you. He also had noticed that he was good in the shepherd field. I, this tells us something about Jacob. You know, should you serve me for nothing? What had he been doing during that month? Sitting around with the remote in his hand? A couch potato? No, that was not Jacob. He was industrious. He was probably teaching the women in the kitchen how to make red lentil soup. <laughs> how to make goat taste like savory venison. His mother's special recipe. I'm sure that every day, every day when it was time for Rachel to, to water the sheep, he was, he'd run out to the well and show off his muscles and lift that, you know, stone and water the sheep. So he wasn't, and most of all, he was valuable to Laban as a shepherd. And so Laban was obviously impressed with Laban's, um, uh, Jacob's industriousness and his skills, and he didn't want to lose him. He did not want him to just get Rachel and leave. He wanted to keep him around because he saw he was going to prosper from his, from his nephew. So at first glance, really, when you look at Laban's wage proposal, it appears to be noble and friendly, right? But there's two red flags, and that's his inclusion of the word serve and wages. Those are a warning that the chickens are about to come home and roost. Is that how it goes? That Jacob is about to enter the time of Jacob's trouble. There you go. Uh, that he is about to start to reap what he had sown. 
As I said, he had met his match. (laughs) Laban noticed how infatuated Jacob was with Rachel. So he cast the bait and he caught himself a very big fish. From God's perspective, Jacob was about to pay in full the wages of his own deception that he had committed against his father. He was going to discover that he had been playing in the little league when it came to his twin brother Esau and bargaining beans for the birthright. And when it came to his old, almost kind of senile, blind father and deceived him with goat meat and goat skin gloves, that was just kid stuff. Get it? Some of you got that. <laughs> In Haran, with his uncle Laban, he was about to come face to face with the NFL version of a professional con man. And he fell easily into Laban's trap when he volunteered. Can you imagine this? Did any of your husbands work for seven years for your hand in marriage without pay? That's what he volunteers to do. I'll serve you, I'll work for you, seven years, no pay, because, see, he didn't have any dowry. He didn't have any gold. All he had was his own skills and his, his mental abilities, and so he was going to, but that was very valuable, what he had. And so uh, it would prove to be significant because Laban prospered greatly because of Jacob. Well, that's a long time, I think. Seven years without any pay. But Jacob's love for Rachel was such that in verse 30, uh, 20, excuse me, 2020, it tells us that to him those seven years were like just a few days. Boy, that guy was head over heels for her, wasn't he? And so the wageless work for wedding exchange went well. It went smoothly until <laughs> it was time for Laban to keep his end of the bargain. He was a, an unscrupulous, greedy, devious, conniving man. He's actually a picture of the antitype. We'll t- I mean, the Antichrist. We'll talk about that um, as we go through this. But he thought nothing of using his own nephew's vulnerability because he was vulnerable. He was a fugitive. He had nothing with him. He was a, in a destitute situation. And he was madly in love with Laban's daughter. So he thought nothing about using his nephew's vulnerability to bind him to the status of a servant. Nor did he have any qualms about what the emotional suffering for his two daughters was going to be in his little wedding deception. Now it's going to be really hard on the daughters. Now another appendix in your notes is why did the women go along with this deception? Well, that was a very strong patriarchal society, and I give you all kinds of reasons, but basically they had no choice. Later on, we find out what they thought of that night. It's in chapter 31 or something. I can't remember where it is, but they they said that they felt like their, their father had sold them like commodities, like he would do with a cow and a sheep. That's how he treated them. He didn't care about their feelings in the situation. Uh, Well, so at sundown, you know, 
he's, he's going to marry Rachel, Jacob is, and so his father-in-law has this big wedding feast. He invites all the people of the city and relatives. And um, at sundown on the wedding night, it was the custom for the heavily veiled bride, heavy veil, you couldn't see her face, um, to be taken to the bridal chamber. Now, I think that Leah and Rachel must have been about the same size because if one was huge, like a cow, and the other one was, you know, like that, you would see the difference. <laughs> so they're probably about the same size. But their face, you know, the face of the bride is heavily veiled until um, she's taken into the, the bridal chamber, which is called a chuppah. I always say chuppah. <laughs> and uh, that's where the marriage is consummated. But see, this is after sundown, and she's in there. And uh, it, it must have been. The, the most wonderful night of Jacob's whole life. He was happy. Finally, after seven years of working, he had his beloved Rachel in his arms, and it was just pure ecstasy for him, right? <laughs> Except the one he was holding his arms was not Rachel, was it? And he didn't find out until the morning. He wakes up, and he looks over and goes, ah, it's cow eyes. <laughs> What's interesting is, uh, is that he doesn't get mad at Leah. He never, ever expresses any anger at Leah, which is really kind of him because she really wasn't at fault. She really had no choice in the matter. So he goes, he goes straight to Laban. He knows who's the source of all this to ask, to ask him why he has beguiled him in such a manner. This is 2925. To which, for the very first time, Laban happens to mention a law in his land that the firstborn has to be married before the younger siblings. Now, it's a little strange that he hadn't mentioned that law seven years ago when Jacob asked for Rachel's hand, right? Isn't that a little bit suspicious? And during seven years and everybody knew he's out there working with the sheep for Rachel's hand in marriage that nobody else mentioned it to him. Laban is using a custom, not a law. He's using a custom. It's usually the firstborn. You know, it was flexible, but he's using that as his excuse. Well, with his own word beguiled in his ears. Jacob is the one who said, why did you beguile me? What does beguile mean? Deceive. You know, why did you deceive me? Lie to me? Um, with that word having been spoken out of his own mouth and then hearing Laban's word, firstborn, all of a sudden, I think it dawns on Jacob that he see that the Lord God has overruled in this situation. He understands uh, that he is reaping what he had sown and deceiving his father's firstborn. And so I think this is why there is such restraint in his anger here. That he, he, otherwise you'd think he'd be boiling over and he's younger and stronger and he could have choked Laban right there and then. But he doesn't. And so Laban, who obviously has premeditated this whole thing, suggests a solution for their little dilemma. He says, why don't you just go ahead, fulfill your necessary duties with... Um, with Leah in the chupa, you know, a, a week. It was strange. They would put that thing as kind of like an outdoor um, 
gazebo thing, you know. I wanted to say a porta potty, but I think it was bigger than that. <laughs> It'd be bigger than that. <laughs> but, while all the guests, wedding guests, are out, I mean, they're celebrating and they're in there consummating. <laughs> and it's right there amongst them. It's really strange. Anyhow, um, so go ahead, finish your, your week in the hoopah with Leah, and then, um, then I'll give you Rachel. You can marry Rachel and spend another week in the hoopah with it's going to be hoopad out <laughs> with Rachel. But for your second wife, you need to serve me another how many years? Another seven years, of course, without any wages. Now, what do you think Ray, uh, uh, Jacob should have done at this point? What do you think he should have done? Remember what Isaac did, his father, when he was convicted and he was trembling all over and he realized God had sovereignly overruled. He was trying to give the blessing to Esau instead of to Jacob. And when he realized God was in control, he went along with it. He said, no, I can't take the blessing back from Jacob. What should Jacob have done here? He should have realized God had overruled. He was reaping what he had sown. He should have kept Leah as his wife. Rachel would have to be given to someone else, but he should not have disobeyed God in becoming a bigamist. And that's exactly what he became. God's pattern for marriage was set at the beginning, wasn't it? One man for a woman. As much as the world has tried to change it, that's what it is. And, uh, but he didn't go along with God overruling in God's pattern, and he went ahead. His passion for Rachel was such that he just had to have her, and so he married Rachel, and he was going to suffer some Bigamy burdens, big time bigamy burdens. <laughs> so, because, think of Leah now, poor Leah. Because of her father's trickery and using her the way he did, she found herself married to a man who was in love with her younger sister. You know, it's one thing to find out your husband love, is in love with another woman, but to find out that that woman is your own sister and your baby sister at that, ugh. That's a hard pill, pill to swallow, isn't it? That is really tough. And uh, so she had a heavy burden, but God, God compensated her burden with a blessing because she could easily conceive. Apparently that week in the hoopah, she probably conceived Reuben, her firstborn, because she um, had no problem conceiving and delivering. She had four sons in a row. Within four years, she had four sons. Now, Rachel... She appeared to have everything. She had it all. She had beauty. She had a great figure. She had the mad passion of her husband's love. You know, you'd think she had it all, wouldn't you? But God compensated her blessings by giving her a burden. And what was Rachel's burden? She was barren. Rachel was barren. We have a girl who goes to our church who's named Rachel Barren. <laughs> That's her name. <laughs> I hope she's not barren. She's 21. She isn't married yet. Um, so she gives birth to four sons in a row. Now, uh, where am I? So here's, here's what you have. Each sister wants what the other has, right? Leah wants her husband's love. Rachel wants children. You ever find competition in, in siblings? We, they're struggling too. There's another wrestling match that goes on between the two sisters, just like there was one that went on between the two brothers, Jacob and Esau. We see the same thing. Repeats. It's, it's often the case. My sister, I have a sister who's one year younger than me. Um, she, she is real short. She actually had a thyroid problem, so she's about that tall. 
and I was 5'8", I keep shrinking, but um, she always wanted to be taller, and I always wanted to be a little smaller, I don't now, now I want to be tall again, but <laughs> especially when you're in eighth grade, and all the guys are midgets, you know, you want to be, <laughs> and you're towering over them, so, and she has curly hair, and she was always, she was ironing it, you know, that's before you had flat irons, and she would be ironing her curly hair, and what do you think I was doing? Getting perms and ro- yeah, rolling. So that's just so, so typical. We always want what's, what we don't have. So uh, we know that Leah longed for Jacob's love because that is deduced from the names she gave her children. Now you can start looking at that paper I gave you. She names her firstborn son Reuben, which means, behold, a son. Look, I've had a son. And every time, what's interesting too, is that Jacob never en- uh, uh, takes up his fatherly role in naming any of his children except Benjamin. The only one is his last son, and the reason he names him is because he doesn't like the name Rachel gave him before she died. She died giving birth to Benjamin, and he changed her, his name from Benone to Benjamin. We'll talk about that. But otherwise, he doesn't name his kids, and that was the father's role. The women name all the kids, so, and every time they give a name, then they give an afterbirth comment explaining why they gave that son the particular name. So here's her afterbirth comment about Reuben. She says, surely <coughs> the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. See what she was doing in na- naming Reuben, Reuben, without the sauerkraut, was declaring to Jacob, <laughs> look, I have given you a son. But she's also acknowledging That it was the Lord, Yahweh. She uses the Lord. When you see Lord in all capitals, that's Yehovah, Jehovah. She's acknowledging it's the Lord who saw her affliction, her pain, her heartache, her loneliness. And subsequently, he blessed her with a son. In crediting God for the birth of her, all of her sons, which is what she does, she uses God's covenant name, Yahweh which tells us that she was interested in the Abrahamic covenant. And she's probably thinking because Reuben is Jacob's firstborn that he's going to be the one to carry on the messianic line, which he would have been if later on he hadn't slept with his father's concubine. These guys all mess up. This is the most dysfunctional family. (laughs) So, but what what we find is that she's a spiritually-minded woman girl, however old she is, I don't know, because by the names she gives her children, we find that she did the right thing in her affliction. She didn't go angrily and complain to Jacob, why don't you love me like you love my sister? We're going to see Rachel does that, she complains, and she doesn't, um, she doesn't ever speak evil of Rachel, ever, It's interesting because the scripture tells us, I hope you go home and read these three chapters, but the scripture tells us that Rachel envied Leah. It never says that Leah envied Rachel. So see, beauty isn't everything, is it? I just look at the Hollywood crowd. How many of them you think are happy? (coughs) So anyway, um, she took her troubles to the Lord. She didn't complain. She took them to the Lord. Well, apparently, Jacob spent additional time with Leah after Reuben's birth because she did go ahead and have three more sons in a row. Four years in a row, she had children. 
However, um, the names that she gave those sons, <clears throat> from the names, it, tell, it appears that Jacob primarily was going to her because she was the fertile wife, not because he had a passion for her, you know, love for her, but it was basically because she was fertile. At the birth of her second son, Simeon, which means here, comes from the same uh, name as Ishmael, Simeon, Leah says this in verse 33. She says she gave him that name because the Lord, Yahweh, hath heard that I was hated. Now, she wasn't hated, but in her mind, it was hatred compared to the love he had for her sister. She said, he has seen that I heard that I was hated. He hath therefore given me this son also. So she's giving credit where credit is due, isn't she? She is saying she knows that it was Yahweh who gave her her second son. She had prayed. If Yahweh heard, obviously she had prayed. She's praying about her burden. This is good. This is all very good. Well, her declaration after the birth of her third son, Levi, Levi means attached or joined, was, this is what she said in verse 34, now this time will my husband be joined unto me because I have borne him three sons. She was hoping that Jacob would really be attached to her now. He would be joined to her, even if it just was because she had given him three sons. The fourth son, named uh, um, Judah, means what in Hebrew? Look at your pages. Praise. Oh, isn't that perfect for the one the Messiah would come from? The lion from the tribe of Judah? Had to go all the way down to number four. (laughs) Reuben was disqualified because he had a relationship with his father's concubine, Bilhah. The other two guys, Simeon and Levi, were eliminated because they murdered a whole town of people because their their sister had gotten raped. So So it goes down to Judah. And believe me, he wasn't perfect either. You know what happened to him. Anyhow, so the fourth son, Judah... With this birth, we see great spiritual maturity in Leah because her afterbirth comment is, now will I praise the Lord. You see, that doesn't say anything at all about Jacob, does it? Now will I praise the Lord, period. She has taken her focus off of her Jacob problem and found her joy and her praise in the God of her salvation. It's all about attitude, isn't it? A lot of people don't have a perfect home situation, do they? But you can have joy in spite of that in the Lord. The Lord hadn't changed her situation. He was changing her. And she was finding the grace she needed to live in less than a perfect situation. And it's so beautiful that Jesus came from praise, (laughs) from the man whose name means praise. Well, four sons in rapid succession didn't go over too well with her sister, Rachel. Now, Rachel is fixated on her barrenness. She's just obsessed with it. And she envies her sister. And then she grows angry at her husband. At one point, this is chapter 30, she's so distraught that she yells at Jacob. Now, these are the first words we ever hear from Rachel. You know what they are? 
Give me children or else I die. Oh, dear. I think that she should have been matched up with Esau. (laughs) Remember? Give me the beans or I'll die. (laughs) They would have made a good pair. Maybe that's what God had originally planned. (laughs) Maybe Rachel and Leah were twins. One could still be the elder and the I don't know. I just speculate. I have fun with all this. But uh, the irony of that statement, that command to her husband, is that she did die in childbirth, didn't she? Giving birth to Benjamin. Well, sadly, she turned to a worldly solution to try to ease her burden rather than turning to the Lord. She didn't turn to the Lord. She turned to giving her handmaid, Bilhah, to Jacob in order to produce surrogate children for her. Now, they're never really counted to her. They're never put in her her little column. (laughs) And she doesn't really, she names them, but neither one of them are ever, you know, because Leah does the same thing with her handmaid. But it's interesting when you read the scripture, God doesn't, see them as belonging to them he sees them as belonging to the handmaids Jacob doesn't count them as belonging to them and then they don't even the women the sisters don't even really the only thing they really did was name them and then they probably gave them back to the handmaids but uh, she turns to doing what Jacob knew that he shouldn't do he knew don't you think he knew about the mess his grandparents had made when they had done that when Abraham had gone in unto Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian handmaid, and Ishmael was born, and the, the mess that that all, because they wouldn't wait. You know, what does Rachel have to complain about? So far, she's only been barren for four years. Do you know how many years Sarah was barren? She was 90 before she had a child. And even Rebecca was barren for 20 years. Rachel's only barren about six years before she has Joseph. But anyway, it's amazing that Jacob goes along with this idea. He complies, and, um, and he does it. He goes and has children with Bilhah. You know, although such practices were, were common, and they were accepted, and they were legal in that culture of that day, this stands true today legalizing sin never makes it right in the sight of God, does it? Like the world is trying to do, which is exactly what they're doing, trying to legalize sin. That's not, I don't care. It's not right in God's sight. And it wasn't right for Jacob to do this because now he turns from being a bigamist, he's a bigamist, and he's he's an, actually, he's an adulterer because he's having fornication outside of marriage. No wonder he had so many problems. So Bilhah gives him two more sons, and Rachel names the first son of Bilhah Dan, which means judged. And the second son she names Naphtali, which means wrestled or struggled. Because she here's what she says. This is in verse 8. This is her afterbirth comment. She says, with great wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed. That is so silly. Okay, so she's got two sons, and they're not even hers. And Rachel, I mean, Leah has how many? And, she, and she's saying she's wrestled and she's won? Something wrong with her calculations there. 
Now, unfortunately, we find that Leah took two steps backwards in her spiritual development because she decided to play the same use the handmaid game that her sister Rachel had played. So she gives her handmaid, Zilpah, Bilhah and Zilpah, (coughs) maybe they're twins, (coughs) to Jacob to produce additional children to be credited to her account, to Leah's account. (coughs) Now, we find out why she had to do that. In verse 15, Rachel was so jealous and envious of her having kid after kid after kid that she prevents Jacob from going into Leah's tent. Can you imagine? And he he goes along with it. And so that's why Leah hasn't been having any more children for a little bit. And so that's why she turns to Zilpah to get some more kids. Well, the worst part of this kid competition contest (laughs) is uh, that Jacob is always so ready to comply. With their schemes. When what he should have done is just flatly refuse. No way. I'm not going to have any part in this, you silly sisters. But he he goes, I don't know what his thinking was. Maybe he thought he was being a peacemaker between the two sisters. Or maybe he thought, well, I did it for Rachel. Whiny Rachel. I did it for her. So I have to be fair to Leah. So I'll go ahead and do it with her handmaid too. (laughs) Yeah, he had the wrong head, didn't he? Maybe, maybe, maybe he thought he was helping God out. You know, God had promised that he would have descendants as the dust of the earth. <laughs> so he was trying to help God. Here, Now, here's what you're all thinking, but you don't want to say it. It could be also possible that he rather enjoyed the sexual variety that the household <laughs> rivalry was providing him. Hmm. But what about prayer? Is there any mention of prayer in all this? You hear anything about prayer? Do you think if he had prayed, God, do you think it's okay if I go into Bilhah and Zilpah and produce more children for you, more dust? Do you think God would have said, yes, Jacob, that's fine? No. So he didn't pray about it. No altars, no prayer. So Zilpah bears him two children, supposedly for Leah, and Jacob now has eight sons from four different women. (laughs) I mean... Who needs soap opera when you have the Bible? (laughs) Who said the Bible was boring? Huh? And Leah named Zilpah's first son Gad. Gad. Which means either good fortune or a troop cometh. (laughs) And by that name, here's what she's doing. She's she's not talking to Jacob right now. She's talking to her sister, Rachel. Ha! You think you wrestled against me and prevailed against me? You haven't seen anything yet. A whole troop is coming. I'm going to have a whole troop of children before this is over. That's what she's saying by that name, (laughs) Gad. Well, the second son born to Zilpah, Leah names Asher. I love the name Asher. When my daughter named her second son, Caleb Asher, I said, Asher? Why would you do that? And then as I studied about Asher, it's perfect for Caleb. My little Caleb, his birthday is Thursday because the name means happy. And if ever there was a happy kid, it's little Caleb Asher. He never stopped talking. He's just so happy. And he just, and I get to keep him until 8 o'clock tonight and I'm going to be worn out because he never stops. He's so precious. He's cute. But Asher means happy. 
sport people should name their kids Asher, shouldn't they? <clears throat> and her comment was, happy am I, this is Leah, happy am I, for the daughters will call me blessed. Verse 13. You see, as Rachel was seemingly more concerned about her reputation before others, which is why she named one son Dan, she's been vindicated. You know, in that culture, they, you were judged if you were barren. All the other women looked down on you. So she says, you know, I've been vindicated, Dan, about my shameful barrenness, and I have prevailed, Naphtali, against my sister. Well, as Rachel was more concerned about what the other women in the community thought, so was Leah. She's more interested in how the two sons that are born to her, supposedly from her handmaid, uh, increase her reputation among the daughters of Haran. You know, it's been bothering her for years that they're all out, there, all those women are out there gossiping about how poor Leah, she was so, she's such unmarriageable material that her father had to trick a man into marrying her. And now she doesn't even have the love of her husband. Don't you know all that was going on in the community? So now she's saying, you know, I'm happy because the daughters of the community have to hold me in high esteem. Now I've got four kids of my own and I've got two adopted kids. Well, time goes on and one day Rachel happens to see Leah's oldest son, Reuben, who's probably about five or six years of age, carrying some love apples. Uh, called mandrakes. Now, those were rare. It was a rare thing to find some, but he had found some out in the field, and he's bringing them home to his mom, Leah. Rachel sees them, and so she, she offers Leah a trade. They're always trading. There's so much bargaining going on in this, in this family. And for the second time, look at verse 14. Look what she says, verse 14, about the mandrakes. Then Rachel said to Leah, give me. What did she say to Jacob? Give me. Give me children or I die. And here she's saying to Rachel, give me. This girl's pretty self-centered, isn't she? So she wants to make a deal. Um, and that deal is that she wants, to, <laughs> she wants to offer mandrakes for the man. Who's the man? Jacob. And we've had, we've had beans for the birthright. <laughs> we've had wages work for the wedding. We've had concubines for the kid count, and now we've got mandrakes for the man. <laughs> and it's interesting. Laban had used his two daughters, Cow and you, as commodities for trading purposes to prosper himself. They, in turn, had used their two handmaids as commodities for themselves, and now they're using their husband, Jacob. You know, they're going to trade him off. He's, he's being used as a commodity. So amazing. So Rachel, here's the deal. She's going to allow Jacob to sleep again in Leah's tent in exchange for those mandrakes, which we, she hopes. Again, she's turning to a worldly solution, isn't she? First she turned to a concubine, and now she's turning to mandrakes um, because she's hoping the mandrakes will help her. They're, they're an aphrodisiac. Did I say that? Okay. She's hoping that they'll cause her to conceive. Well, what do you think happened? She didn't conceive, but Leah did. <laughs> and uh, we find that that night in the tent with Leah caused Jacob to become, again, sexually active with Leah. I can't believe I'm talking about all this. And he, his tent time with Leah. <laughs> I 
<laughs> his tent time, produced two more sons. So Leah named her fifth son, and it actually says her fifth son. If those two concubine sons counted, it would have been her seventh, but the scripture says fifth, okay? So her fifth son she names Issachar, which means reward or wages, and the sixth son she names Zebulun. Zebulun means dwelling. So, and she said, now will my husband dwell with me, because I have borne him six sons. Now, those who study words called etymologists say that also in the word Zebulun, you have not only dwelling, but honor. So basically, she could be saying, now will my husband honor me, because I've given him six sons. There's also included in the word Zebulun, the words glory and heaven. Like when we get to glory, when we dwell in glory. So keep that in mind because that's significant. You know, Leah, she wouldn't have known this, but from heaven she knows this. She truly was honored by the Lord God in that he himself came into this world through her fourth son, praise, through Judah. That's an honor. She also was honored in that when he did come to earth, he dwelt the vast majority of his life in Nazareth. Nazareth is located in the land given to the tribe of Zebulun. So he dwelt in the place of dwelling, the tribe of dwelling. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. Well, after six birth sons, she had a girl. Her seventh birth child is a girl. Now, I believe they all had girls, but the girls are not mentioned in the Old Testament usually unless they play a part somewhere along the line. And I think that's the reason Dinah is the only daughter that's mentioned because she is the one who gets raped later on. And then her two brothers, Simeon and Levi, her full brothers, um, seek vengeance and they murder the, everybody in that town. Um, so I think that's why she's mentioned here. But seven, now seven birth children brings completion. Isn't seven the number of completion? Completion to Leah. She's now at, she's content She's at peace with her situation. We don't read about any more striving, struggling, wrestling between her and her sister, Rachel. Even Rachel finally stops complaining and turning to the world's solutions to try to ease her burden. Apparently, she finally got the hint that she should humble herself before the Lord. And in his grace, he opened her womb and really blessed her big time because she gave birth to a very special son. What was his name? Joseph. Now, Joseph is a unique name. Very unique name because it actually has two meanings. And she had both of those meanings in mind when she gives her afterbirth comment about him. It can mean both to take away and to add to, which seems strange. Like addition and subtraction but it can mean either one and here's what she said about him she said god hath taken away joseph taken away my reproach i'm not barren anymore and then she gives a prophecy she says the lord first time she uses the covenant name of god yahweh the lord shall add to me another son and the lord did didn't he he added to her another son Well, God didn't bless her with a quantity of sons, but he sure did bless her with quality sons because Joseph, we'll start in the fall with the life of Joseph. He is probably the most perfect 
type of Christ there is. Moses, he's kind of in competition with Moses. You'll find out why I say that, because most people don't get into that. But Moses is also a type of Christ. If you were here when we did our sermon on Stephen, you know. But um, he was the, definitely the most Christ-like of Jacob's 12 sons, wasn't he? And Benjamin, do you know who came from the tribe of Benjamin? Paul, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, yes. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And he is the most Christ-like man, human, that I guess there's ever been. Well, it's wonderful to find that both sisters finally end their seven-year struggle with expressions of faith. Leah, whose burden was her loveless loneliness. She's not lonely anymore. She's got seven kids to take care of. Uh, she had faith. She expresses faith that her husband will dwell with her, Zebulun. All right. Rachel, with her barren burden, finally has faith that in addition to Joseph, the Lord is going to bless her with another son. And uh, it's interesting to find that the Lord actually honors the faith of both sisters by the same event. Because Rachel did, the Lord did add to her another son. But in the process of giving birth to him, she died. Right? And therefore, her death, in her death, Leah did become Jacob's only wife. And so he did dwell with her. Do you know that Jacob was only married to Rachel for 13 years? Do you know how long he was married to Leah? 64 years who do you think raised Joseph and Benjamin? Did you ever think about that? Who actually raised? Joseph was only six or seven years old when his mommy died. And Benjamin was a baby. Leah raised those two. Well, as her soul was departing, we are told. Now that means the soul does leave the body. The soul leaves the body. As her soul was departing from her body, Rachel named her second son Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But after she died, for the only time he took up his fatherly responsibility, Jacob changed the name from Benoni, son of my sorrow, to Benjamin, which means what? Son of my right hand. Well, a critical change occurs at this point with regard to the Abrahamic covenant. You know, the Lord, when he gave the covenant to Abraham, then later on, he made it very clear that that covenant and all the promises were only passed to one of his sons, and that was to Isaac, right? Not Ishmael. Ishmael was excluded from the blessings and the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Then with Isaac, he says, it's only going to pass to one son, not Esau, like you tried to do, but to Jacob. Well, here now, things change because the covenant promises are going to go to all 12 of Jacob's sons. You see, God is starting to build a nation from Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. Even though the Messiah would come through one son, that would be Judah, all the promises were for all the descendants of Jacob, including the daughters. So there's a change. Well, now we're going to look at something really amazing. Have your charts still there. I want to show you how the burdens, all this stuff we've been talking about, the strivings, the struggles, the burdens, the jealousies, the desires, the joys, the praises of Jacob's wives, which were expressed in the names that they gave to their sons and the sons of their 
handmaids, those names spell out a prophetic message concerning God's plan of salvation through his Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. It does tell us in the New Testament that the gospel was preached to ancient Israel and that the gospel was preached even to the patriarchs. And here is one way. It's veiled in these names, the names of the 12 sons. And even the order is just mind-boggling. Only God could do this. So let's go back and look quickly through those names. Reuben. First one, what does it mean? Behold a son. Behold a son. That's the main message of the whole Bible, isn't it? Behold a son. Men of all ages are to be looking at the son, the promised seed of the woman who would come and has come through Abraham's descendants. The message of the gospel is this. Get your focus on the only begotten son of God because he is the redeemer. Reuben pictures the person of redemption, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son. Second son born to Jacob was named Simeon. What does that mean? Here, a person cannot be redeemed without hearing the salvation message. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. How shall they hear without a preacher? Hear and your soul shall live. Hear, hear, hear. It's all over the scripture. You have to hear the word of God to be saved. Simeon pictures the preaching of redemption. Third son was Levi, which means attached or joined. When a person beholds the son, focuses on the son, and has ears that are willing to hear the message about the son. The next step in redemption is that he is attached to or he is joined to the son through faith. Paul, the apostle, spoke of believers who have been joined unto the Lord. Christ spoke of his, his followers as being attached to him. I am the vine, ye are the branches. In Ephesians, we have the picture of Christ as the bridegroom. We are joined to him as the bride, the church. So Levi pictures the, the position of redemption. We're attached. We're in Christ. Furthermore, when a person receives Christ, he becomes part of his royal priesthood. And you know that the Old Testament Levitical priesthood came from the tribe of Israel, of Levi. Moses and Aaron were from the tribe of, of uh, so the Aaronic and the Levitical priesthood came. Leah was really blessed, wasn't she? So it not only, Levi speaks of the position of redemption and the priesthood of the redeemed. Fourth son, doesn't take much to explain him, praise. He pictures the praise of the redeemed. The praise that comes into the believer's heart because of the Lord's forgiveness of his or her sins and the salvation that accompanies salvation, the um, forgiveness. If ever there was anything to praise about, there wouldn't be any praise in the world without Jesus, would there? Well, Jacob's next son was Dan, judged or vindicated. He pictures the pardon of the redeemed. The one who has come to Christ is vindicated declared blameless by the judge for his sins, for our sins. We are justified by Christ. It was appropriate then that Naphtali, or however you pronounce it, um, Naphtali, Naphtali, that his name means wrestling or wrestled because 
And also he was Jacob's sixth son, which is interesting because six is the number of man. The newly saved person almost immediately realizes that he or she has an ongoing struggle, right? A wrestling match with our old man, our flesh. And we soon realize we've entered into spiritual warfare. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities, powers, you know, Satan's realm. So he represents, Naphtali represents the problem of the redeemed, but there is a solution to that problem, and that is the prayer power of the redeemed. And that's a struggle too, isn't it? You know, prayer is a struggle. It's my main struggle is having time. I know I need to make time, and I make time, and then I fall asleep. Uh, but prayer, that's the, that's the solution for the problem of the redeemed. The seventh son, Gad, a troop cometh. He pictures the people of redemption. We need to fortify one another in our mutual ongoing warfare with our enemies, the world, Satan, and our flesh. This is why we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We form together the army of the Lord, don't we? A troop cometh. Uh, one day, you know, when Satan is, has everyone gathered against Israel to finally annihilate Jacob, um, those people gathered there, those soldiers gathered there are going to look up into the sky and, and they're going to cry out in total fear. A troop cometh! Gad! Was ye Gad? <laughs> because here comes Christ. And who's going to be with him? Us. Us. God is not going to ever let Israel be annihilated. Happy birthday, Israel, next week. It'll be Israel's 70th birthday. Well, not technically, but you know. Um, so, Gad, a troop coming. Eighth son, Asher. Happy, happy. He pictures the pleasure of the redeemed. The joy of redemption in Christ, the joy of salvation is really the only true happiness there is in life, isn't there? There can be no happiness apart from knowing Christ, really. It's only all just temporal, temporary. Well, the ninth son, born of Leah, ninth son of Jacob, was named Issachar. What's that mean? Wages are higher. The believer is saved to serve. There is a purpose for the redeemed, and that's to serve the living God. We are his servants. We are his stewards. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, undo good works. Tenth son, also by Leah, was Zebulun, which means dwelling. The promise of the redeemed that motivates us to gather, gad, happily, Asher, we're gathered we're Gad, Asher, here today, aren't we? <laughs> We're gathered happily and serving Issachar, all in the right order. But the motivation for all of that is um, that one day we have the promise that Christ is going to come in Zebulun with us. We're going to Zebulun with him. He already did come in Zebulun with us in the first coming. The second coming, we're going to Zebulon with him. We're going to dwell with him. He's even right now making us Zebulun places, isn't he? <laughs> Dwelling places. Um, and one day will eternally dwell in Zebulun. This, the first son of, of uh, Rachel, 11th son of Jacob, was Joseph, which means, as I told you both to take away and to add to, since Joseph is perhaps the most comprehensive type of Christ in a single individual in the scripture, it makes sense that his name 
Now remember, all this is 2,000 years before Jesus, okay? That his name is a prophetic message of Christ. You see, the Lord had to be taken away before he could add to. He had to die before he could bring forth much fruit. Get it? Perfect, perfect. Joseph speaks of the prophetic person of the Redeemer. It gives us a prophecy of his death, that he would be taken away, and of his proliferation after his death. Remember on the day the church was born, thousands were added? So took away so he could add two. Then the 12th son of Jacob, who wasn't born until later in chapter 35, at the time of Rachel's death, had also had, well, had two names. Joseph had two meanings, but this, this kid had two names, actually two names. And they both picture, prophetically again, the person of the Redeemer. As Rachel's soul is departing, she quickly names her newborn son Benoni, son of my sorrow. And this matches up with the taking away meaning of Joseph's name. If you want to draw a little arrow, they match up. Son of my sorrow matches up with the taking away. <clears throat> it goes hand in hand with the name son of my sorrow because it was Christ's suffering and his death in, in those things that he was called the man of sorrows, wasn't he? The son of sorrows. That's the price of redemption, that he had to suffer and die for us. Rachel's death and Benjamin's birth prefigured the death and resurrection of Christ. For out of death came forth life. But Jacob was inspired to change that name shortly after Rachel's death to change it to Benjamin, meaning son of my right hand. He took a name of gloom and he changed it into a name of victory. Out of Rachel's dying womb came forth the son of his father's right hand. Where do you think little Benjamin was all those years? At his daddy's right hand. Oh, he, he wasn't going to let him go. Remember when the boys came back to bring Benjamin? <gasps> Not after having lost Joseph. Just as out of the tomb of death came bursting forth the glorified son who ascended to where? the right hand of his father. The son of sorrow became the son of glory. Benoni speaks of the person of the redeemer as the man of sorrows, the price of our redemption. Benjamin represents the power of uh, redemption. And the power of redemption is in the power of resurrection. Just all so beautiful. Twelve baby boys born from five people named by three parents, according to very peculiar circumstances, about which no one involved in those circumstances had any idea that it was all actually the finger of God writing an eternal message of hope and redemption in his only begotten son. Who but a total infidel or a willingly unbel willing unbeliever could not see the hand of God in this when it's revealed to them? Don't you wish all the world could see things like this in the scripture? It is amazing, truly amazing. 
Well, uh, when Joseph was born, Jacob's second seven years of service to Laban were over. He was free to return, to go back to Canaan. He had met his obligation. Only one problem. He didn't have any animals to carry everybody back. He had nothing, did he? Still only had a staff. (laughs) Um, And so he had to seek Laban's permission to be able to go. He could have packed up and left by himself, yes, but he could not have taken his family with him. And we know that because six years later, he does try to escape without Laban's permission. And just like Pharaoh of Egypt, what does Laban come doing? Racing after him in great rage. And he would have, without God's intervention, did God intervene with Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea? Yes, Well, he did the same thing with Laban. Laban is coming, and he would have probably killed Jacob and then taken back his family. He even tells Jacob, those are not your wives. Those are not your children. They're mine. He would have either killed him or he would have taken him back, and he would have been a servant forever to Laban. His family would have amalgamated, would intermarried with the Syrians, and that would have been the end. Who was behind Laban? Satan. They say that he was an antichrist, actually the first great satanic enemy of Israel. Wanted to cut off Israel right at her conception, prevent Jacob from going back to the promised land. He tells Jacob in one of the verses that he had learned by experience that the Lord had blessed him, Laban, because of Jacob. You know, every time Israel was in exile, the land would prosper. Because they're great, smart merchants and bankers and lawyers, right? And so the lands would prosper. And then that would make the people jealous. Like Laban's sons got so jealous of the next six years, Jacob is a shepherd. And he's really clever. And he gets the flocks to increase so that when he finally leaves, he has so much. Laban really doesn't want to let him go. Um, But what was I saying? Oh, he says, by experience. But in in the original, it's actually that he's telling. Now, he didn't believe in God. He he could use the name the Lord. But we know he worshipped idols because Rachel stole one of his idols. But when he says by experience in in the Hebrew, it's actually by divination. He had learned by divination. That's an occultic practice. And do you know what the word for divination is? It's nachash, which is exactly the same word used of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Laban was a tool of Satan. He wanted to prevent Jacob, Israel, from going back to the land. But who had promised, in the latter Lord dream, who had promised Jacob he would return to the land? He would be with him. He would preserve him. He would protect him. The Lord God. And he keeps his promises. Therefore, the night, you know, Jacob sneaks out six years later. He spent a total of 20 years in Haran under Laban. But um, he finally says, I got to get out of here because the Lord told him it's time to leave. Laban's countenance changed towards him, just like a new Pharaoh came in, you know, and his countenance changed. And uh, so the Lord tells Jacob, leave. He gets the permission of his wives and they leave. And uh, Laban finds out three days later, and he catches up with them in Mount Gilead, and he knows that he, they can't escape him, so he camps for the night, and then next morning, 
He's going to take back his family or kill Jacob or whatever. And the Lord gives Jacob a dream. I mean, not Jacob, uh, Laban, a dream. And it really caught his attention because he said basically in the dream, don't you dare touch Jacob. (laughs) I love it. It's the same thing. Are you getting the picture? Just, you know, he's a picture of Israel. The apple of the Lord's eye, don't you dare. He's going to always come to the defense of Israel. He is not going to let her be annihilated. Don't you dare touch Jacob. And Laban gets the message and he retreats and Jacob returns from exile into the land. And it's just all such a beautiful picture. And I skipped over it way too fast, even though I'm 10 minutes over. (laughs) But... uh, Read your notes, read your notes, and and listen to my prayer because I kind of wrap it all up in the prayer, okay? So let's bow together. Father, how magnificent it is that everything begins and ends with Yeshua, with Jesus. He is the Aleph and the Tav, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, and the author and the finisher of our faith. To him and to him alone be glory and honor and praise forevermore. When we study things like this, we just see how amazing. That's the only word I can think of. How amazing, incredible are your ways that you can take the flawed nature of man, even a saved man like Jacob, and use his many mistakes. And you can take the evil of another man, Laban, an unsaved, self-centered, satanically inspired person. And you can take and use the emotional drama between two rival sisters and their burdens. And you can even take the innocent handmaids involved and used in this long ago historical account. You can take all of that and sovereignly overrule And inspire things so that the names of Jacob's 12 sons and the order even of their births spell out the gospel message of your son, our Redeemer. Even some 2,000 years before he was even born. Oh, you are just absolutely awesome. Awesome. May we not keep this to ourselves. May we share this truth with others so that they too might be convinced and assured of the divine inspiration of the word of God. It is your word and we thank you for it. And we thank you for the birth of your son and his being taken away so that we could be added to your church. And we love you, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.